this is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode number 10, a conversation with Rory Sutherland. Rory is the vice chairman of the advertising giant Ogilvy, a columnist at The Spectator and author of the book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense, a book which has found itself on the recommendation list of many notable figures across various disciplines. Within Ogilvy, Rory founded the behavioral science practice, bringing behavioral science and elements of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to marketing and business in general. But none of these are the most impressive things about Rory. His ability to psychologically frame a problem, to pluck ideas from different fields, to put seemingly irrational ideas into action, to show you the magic behind dull, ordinary things is second to none. I've learned much from Rory over the years, from reading his work to listening to his talks, one key theme of this podcast itself was inspired by some of Rory's work, and so having the chance to speak to Rory, albeit over Zoom, well, it was special. Our conversation overran by about 90 minutes, coming in at just under two and a half hours. But for the sake of brevity, podcasting etiquette, and being cautious of airing too many thoughts, which could be seen as provocative, I've edited this down. It's hard to give a precise summary of what we discuss in this episode, because the conversation goes from topics such as the problems with logic, to who were the YouTube influencers of the 18th century, or why are metrics an issue as demonstrated by dog breeding, to the showmanship of Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, and when should accountants seek advice from poets, and a hundred other bizarre areas where this conversation goes. You will just have to listen till the end. So here is the real life Donald Draper and psychological innovation maestro, Rory Sutherland. Thank you for joining us, Rory. It's a pleasure, great pleasure to be here. I want to kickstart with something which is a, a core theme of the Stars and Bacteria podcast, and it's actually inspired partly by one of your ideas, which is the role of psychological innovation versus technological innovation as a means to progress. And you've said, or rather popularized the term psychological innovation, and that it's perhaps more important than technological innovation in unlocking more progress down the line. There seems to be in direct contrast to what certain individuals from the Silicon Valley world or the startup world may believe. and Peter Thiel, who we were speaking about earlier, he mentioned that there's been progress in the world of bits, but not atoms. And one of the reasons for this is because we're overly concerned with the inner psychological world, and we have a habit of making everything about you know, matters that are therapeutic or meditative, when what we should be doing is focusing on building real solutions in the external world. So if Peter Thiel were listening, could you tell him maybe why he's wrong or convince him otherwise? Right. No, I don't think he's wrong. I mean, I think his great quote was, what was it? We wanted flying cars and we ended up with 180 characters. And he's certainly right in saying that the early stages of internet fortunes have been too much built on perhaps cute winner-takes-all new forms of interpersonal communication. And I would argue that our complete failure to adopt video conferencing in the business world, mm -hmm. which I would argue is probably more important than a flying car, by the way. And I think it's probably more important as a technology, potentially, than, uh, you know, the Hyperloop, for example, mm -hmm. simply because it's completely instantaneous. I mean, how can you beat that? Okay. What I would say is that, first of all, I'm not necessarily claiming that it's all about psychology and that we should be less concerned about engineering achievement than we are about psychological changes. But I would say that, first of all, when things are successful, engineering probably claims too much of the credit and psychology too little. 
I think video conferencing, we've all had a crash course in it during the COVID lockdown. But I think it's a very interesting case where the technology got good, but the level of adoption before COVID was a tiny fraction of what it logically should have been. And that's because of the difficulty that humans experience, particularly in an institutional setting, in changing their behavior significantly. So large parts of commuting should have changed two or three or four years ago when video conferencing technology stopped being novel and started being actually quite good. And I think, by the way, psychologically, that was part of the problem, which is that it was one of those technologies, which is when it was novel, it was a bit crap. And by the time it stopped being crap, it was no longer novel. And so you felt a bit stupid going into the office going, there's this great thing called Zoom, because people went, yeah, we had that since Skype in 1996. Why are you getting excited about it? And the reason to get excited is because although in technological terms, it hadn't really crossed any new threshold, in psychological usability terms, it had. One of the things I'd say here is that we've got to be very careful about this because the obstacle to innovation is more likely to be consumer adoption, which is a psychological problem, than it is to be any level of you know, engineering improvement that needs to be made. One Italian economist who even argues that the pace of economic growth of the United States is largely now limited, not by what you can offer people, but by what they're mentally capable of adopting. The United States is the most innovative consumer group in the world. I think that's probably a fair claim to make in terms of their appetite for adopting new ideas. But there's a limit to the speed at which people can actually change their behavior or change their perception sufficiently to adopt the technology that's now available. The second thing I'd say is that if you look at the innovation, and I think Matt Ridley half acknowledges this, but not enough in his book, How Innovation Happens. Edison was as important as a showman as he was as an inventor. Most of these people, Elon Musk would be another example, Steve Jobs would be a spectacular example. Most of these people who get credit for being spectacular innovators, and bear in mind, Jobs couldn't even code. They're really, in many cases, kind of marketing shaman as much as they are innovators. And their achievement looks extraordinary. But actually, technologically, you often find it's barely that much ahead of three other people doing similar work in the field at the same time. What makes them so successful in terms of innovation as opposed to invention, i.e. not only inventing things, but getting them widely adopted, is to a great extent, they're kind of, it's more P.T. Barnum than it is uh, Nobel Prize winner. And I think we should just be honest enough and say that one of the greatest qualities you can have as an innovator is the capacity, either in yourself or in someone else, to market your ideas. Now, my wife is a vicar, and if she ever gives me a hard time for working in marketing, I always have the repast, which is no one would have heard of Jesus if it hadn't been for St. Paul. Okay. <laughs> you know, Darwin, in a sense, had Huxley. I think it's interesting, if you think about it, that Alfred Russell Wallace didn't really have his own marketing guy, whereas Darwin had a you know, I think was naturally a diffident man, but had a clutch of people around him who are prepared to take the ball and run with it and make a lot of noise. 
And we tend to think of science as this pure Baconian process where all you have to do is demonstrate something. Everybody goes, well, given this wonderful quality of peer-reviewed, double-blind trial evidence to support this hypothesis, my mind is now changed. It never works like that. Never. If you look at people like Jenner, for example, or even more depressing, Semmelweis, Jenner had to spend most of his goddamn life fighting off opposition to the idea of vaccination. The success of variolation was Mary Wortley Montague and her brilliant marketing success in getting the British royal family to adopt variolation, which therefore made it pretty much that royal families were the celebrities of their day. They were the YouTube influencers of, of the kind of 18th century. If you've got a king to go to Brighton or to travel to Biarritz or whatever, huge groups of people then automatically followed. And so quite a lot of the success of innovation and improvement in our behavior should be attributable to marketing rather than invention. Okay, you can invent soap, and no one's quite sure who did, by the way. But what really made a difference to public health was millions of pounds, and I don't just mean in real terms, I mean in absolute terms, spent encouraging people to buy and use soap. And that was the real public health improvement. It was achieved through marketing and persuasion, not actually through an invention which then got adopted. But in the status game of the engineer or the inventor or the scientist, your ability as an inventor or scientist is about 97%. In fact, it's more. Your ability as a marketer is, if anything, slightly frowned on. Mm -hmm. So everybody is much, much happier to claim credit for invention than they are for persuasion. Something you've touched on before is certain groups, for example, academics, they tend to despise the concept of marketing because their thought process is that their idea or findings are objective truth and this should be appreciated regardless of the way it's presented. I think in one of your articles you mentioned when the existence of the Higgs boson was announced and they were doing a presentation, the font they used on the slide was, was Comic Sans and that's how little they cared for it. But history and research seems to tell us otherwise that our reactions to ideas are often based on how they are framed and not just the objective truth. Okay, I'll give, there are a few sciences I'll give an out to here. I think in mathematics, generally speaking, what you will find is that the very, very advanced maths community will respond immediately to you know, a refutation. Certain levels of physics and engineering, people will say, you know, we used to all believe it was three, but someone proved it was two. And basically, there's a very high rate of acquiescence to new ideas. So I think that's less one funeral at a time. But once you get into complex areas, for example, medicine, or you get into areas like social science, to be honest, I think half of social science is a bunch of people believing what they want to believe. I don't think they'd actually react to evidence if you actually put a gun to their head. The idea that because something comes under this aegis of science, we can assume that it's this glorious, self-correcting, Popperian kind of system, I think is just completely naive. And I think the whole history of invention and innovation basically proves that. I mean, if you think about it, okay, look at ordinary human behavior. This is why I get obsessed with video conferencing, because it's an extraordinary technology. Let's imagine a world where video conferencing had been invented before the internet by some freak, weird, you know, parallel universe thing. I think what would have happened is we would have made a lot of fuss about it, and we would have actually had meetings saying, how do we reinvent our business on the basis of what this technology makes possible? 
And yet, because the hype cycle was disrupted, I think, and that's only one of about five or six reasons I can surmise for the reason video conferencing created so little excitement. Why, when we've invented a technology like the internet, why do people still travel into the office on a crowded train at 7.30 in the morning and then spend the first two hours of the working day looking at a screen, which would be exactly the same had they stayed at home? Now, it's, bear in mind, it's much, much harder to change behavior in a social setting, i.e. the office, versus changing behavior individually, because so much of what you do in the office is done for purposes of signaling. But nonetheless, I regard it as a visible failing of the business and commercial world that nobody actually held a conference at Ogilvy, and let's, okay, let's direct the blame on ourselves, saying, potentially, we're a professional services firm. Quite a lot of what we sell is effectively talking to people face-to-face. This thing gives us a superpower. It's kind of teleportation. We should start doing things differently as a result of this thing now being widely usable. And nobody did a thing. I'll give you another example of this, which I only discovered myself properly about a week ago, thanks to lockdown, which is voice transcription. Why the fuck are we typing so much? Nobody realizes, and this requires marketing, the fact that speaking is, God, I'm seven times faster than typing. When I finish this chat, I'm recording it on a little Olympus voice recorder. I'll plug it into my laptop, upload it to otter.ai, and I'll have something like at the end of this podcast, I don't know, five, 6,000 words. I might even have 8,000 words. That's a tenth of a book. So there's something really interesting here I think we need to look at, which is that people aren't going around looking for new ways to behave. Most people, most of the time, aren't really driven by evidence. They're driven by habit for a large part. And they're also driven by social copying. And those are the really two mega forces in human behavior. And new evidence comes in at a distant number three, I would argue. I support behavioral sciences because if you admit psychological counterintuitive interventions into your solution set, you massively expand the potential solution space for any problem. If you insist on using economics, which is psychology free, you end up with basically two things you can do in response to anything. You know, tax it, ban it, incentivize it. That's it. So, you know, the the, the LSE recently published a thing saying if you want people to install smart meters, you're going to have to pay them 300 quid each. That was the economic model. And I go, no, no, no. My argument is if you tell people that the smart meter, if you keep it by your, your door of your house, every time you leave the house, you can check you haven't left something switched on. A bunch of punters go, oh, I never thought of that. That's quite handy. Uh, So you can just sell something in a different context. You can just recontextualize something and something that's shit becomes good. Mm -hmm. Again, that's advertising, basically. Uh, (laughs) Change the context, change the comparative set, change the default, behavior changes, okay? So it hugely increases the solution space. Where I think there's rights to criticize behavioral economics is where people are trying to make human behavior in reality more closely match what economists think rationality should be. I take the opposite approach, which is when people deviate from economic rationality, they've probably got a good reason for doing so. Right. My argument would be I would often be happy to design things in a much more irrational way, in a way that drives economists practically insane, if that means that people are more inclined to do it. And so that's the opposite of designing things and continually meddling with the 
presentation of information to people until their perceived reality matches the kind of reality that economists think we should be operating in. So, for example, getting pensions early, right? Now, there are loads of behavioral ideas I can happily deliver which will encourage more people to save younger. One of them being that your pension should be retrievable in the short to medium term. Asking someone to put money away that they can't touch until they're 65 is a stupid request of a 25-year-old because there's too much uncertainty between now and then for them confidently to make that commitment. But the second thing I said is that at some level, I know you economists all believe that everybody should be saving for their pension at 20. But if you're a 20-year-old, a more important consideration than optimization of your long-term wealth is probably optimization of your mating prospects, okay? Finding a high-quality life partner is the job of your 20s, okay? (laughs) And I don't know if you noticed this, but very few people go on Tinder and talk about their pension provision, right? So the fact that people aren't saving as much as you might logically expect at that period of their lives Mm -hmm. makes sense when you look at the wider context of what they're really trying to do. And so, you know, buying a Ford Mustang V8, depending on the kind of person you want to attract, might be a much better, actually for a female particularly, it would be a much better life strategy than putting the money into a 401k. I'd criticize some of the more extreme people in the behavioral science field, the people who think that your, your savings should immediately move to whichever provider is offering the highest interest rate. Mm-hmm. is, of course, a route to absolute financial disaster because it creates a total race to the bottom. And secondly, of course, it's transactional capitalism tends to create low trust environments, whereas relational capitalism, where you pay a premium, you willingly pay a premium to the provider so that they're interested in your long-term continued custom, which is a second-order thing, that tends to create a high-trust environment. This is kind of complicated, I think, because I think that economists understand one-shot transactions, and they try and optimize those, whereas we're not trying to optimize those as human beings. I always use the same taxi firm in Seven Oaks, and I pay them a bit over the odds because I want them to be there for me when I really need a taxi. Right. And if I'm reasonably profitable to them and they make a few hundred quid out of me every year, they're going to pull their finger out when my wife breaks down in the snow. If I go and ask for competing quotes every time I get a taxi, I'm not going to have that kind of relationship with them of mutual obligation in the event of unforeseen needs. So we're buying insurance with every transaction in anonymous exchange. We're buying a kind of insurance. I think there are a lot of people who have physics envy, and I think physics envy is the most useful phrase I've ever come across to describe this. And they think that what science is taking something which is a complex system mm-hmm. and shoehorning it into a Newtonian model or shoehorning it into a simpler model. This happens in business. What fascinates me is it also happens in science, I think, which is the replication crisis, right, in behavioral science. It's not a crisis to me. I'm an ad guy, right? I wouldn't expect anything to replicate in behavioral science that well because our behavior is so driven by context that the same thing to people in a different setting will lead to a completely different behavior. And I remember reading about a piece of behavioral science, an experiment that didn't support a thesis, but the experiment which involved generosity and kind of reciprocal generosity of some kind took place in Las Vegas because it involved casino tokens. And I said, nobody is going to behave and respond to generosity in Las Vegas the same way as they would in Devon or Cornwall, right? So if you think about it, Las Vegas is probably the scam capital of the world. 
if someone comes up to you and goes, here's $200, right? Your first reaction isn't gratitude. It's, oh, shit, what the hell's going on here, right? <laughs> this is obviously part of some elaborate scam. Now, if equally the same act of generosity, I was in a West Country tea shop and the woman said as I was leaving, well, I actually baked a few too many scones today. So if you like, you can have five of these to take home, my lover. I'm using the West Country as a kind of putative high trust environment. Now, I'd probably go, God, that's really wonderful. Thank you very much. How nice that is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm not going to react in the same way in Las Vegas to an act of generosity because the guy's almost certainly out to rook me. And so my argument is, look, business doesn't need to worry about replication. Science does, because science, in order to be a scientist, you've got to pretend you come up with a universal law. In business, you've just got to discover an anomaly, which is frequent enough that you can make some money out of it. Business is a much better methodology for solving most real-world problems than science is, because science is designed for a world in which there's a single right answer and everything else is wrong. Business is great at solving problems when there's more than one right answer. The right answer depends on both the subject and the context. And indeed, it's so messy that the opposite of a good idea isn't necessarily wrong. It could be another good idea. What I'm saying is that actually business is a fantastic problem-solving tool, but it's never viewed as such. This depresses me because I think that business, if you view it as a process of discovery, if you treat it as the Galapagos Islands, for understanding behavior. Business is actually much more, almost more valuable in that function as it is as a means of generating wealth. It's very good at that as well. But if you, are, if you look at business as a problem-solving mechanism, Nicholas Gruen, the Australian economist, is very good on this, that actually science tends to favor the guy who invents something as if that's the big problem. But actually, someone's going to solve those problems eventually anyway, most of the time. Okay, so let's take something like Wi-Fi, okay, which I think was a bunch of Aussie astronomers, and they used a load of, I think the Fourier transform plays some role in how you develop Wi-Fi. Brilliant thing, okay, absolutely extraordinary thing. Now compare the problem of solving the problem of, you know, short-range data transmission compared to the problem of we've got to get every cafe in the developed world to make Wi-Fi available, right, okay? across a population of about a billion people. And we've got to do that in five years. There's no scientific answer to that problem. Business answers that problem without even thinking about it. The great thing about business is you can be quite thick and be a successful businessman. That's why scientists hate business people, because a lot of the successful ones are actually quite thick. But that's not a bug, that's a feature. (laughs) Because when the system's intelligent, the individual actors don't have to be. It's like bees. You've got an intelligent system, doesn't matter. That's what's brilliant about this. You can actually derive huge amounts of value overall from thick people, people who are misguided, people who are wrong, people who do things which they shouldn't do, which then through total fluke turn out to be successful. And then you reward, regardless of the quality of the working out, you reward the outcome. You don't reward the quality of thinking that went into it which makes business highly arbitrary in who it rewards, but that's the whole virtue of the system. So communism could never have come up with Red Bull, could it? Because the argument's weak for Red Bull. The argument's hopeless. So it costs a fortune, it comes in a tiny can, and it tastes horrible. We've asked, you know, a thousand people whether they're interested in an expensive, horrible-tasting drink that comes in a tiny can, and everybody said no. Okay. Now, the fact that you're rewarded disproportionately for trying things that are counterintuitive when they succeed, so that actually encourages you to try new things. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at science, okay, 
probably your bloody papers peer-reviewed by eight people who are responsible for your career. If you're right and your, and your bosses and seniors in science were wrong, okay, there's a 1% chance you get a Nobel Prize or something, or 0.001% chance you get a Nobel Prize, and you eventually prove yourself vindicated. To be honest, there's a 99% chance that your career ends in kind of ignominious failure. Isn't <laughs> right? and the great thing about business, too, is you've only got to be right in a small way, okay, and you get to survive. A large part of business is surviving long enough that you get lucky. You know, if you survive long enough, you'll stumble on something by accident, quite often by accident, by the way. Right. I don't think this is virtuous, but it's, um, uh, it's extraordinarily clever as a system, and yet nobody looks at that. Matt Ridley is great for this, as is um, Eric Beinhocker, because they actually take a kind of evolutionist view of how business works rather than a kind of narrow engineer's view or an economist's view. In many cases in business, the average is misleading because the market is in the extremes. And so averages can often refer to something that barely exists at all. And so as a result, I think the whole question of our confidence in very basic maths, because the typical person in a decision-making position uh, in large parts of business and in enormous parts of journalism and public policy is someone who has a kind of understanding of maths at the level of a 15-year-old and therefore tends to view it with, therefore, there is no room for context or subjective judgment. Whereas really good mathematicians say, look, 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 it isn't actually knowing uh, the maths, it's knowing which kind of maths to use. And so that ergodicity question is absolutely fascinating because it reveals a kind of institutional bias in decision-making, which is that we tend to look at the ensemble average as being representative of the, of the expected time series outcome. It, it was interesting you mentioned about you know, certain decision-makers who have perhaps not the greatest understanding of mathematics. There is a, what is he? He's an entrepreneur. He was an investor before. He, he was an academic originally. You may have heard of him, Balaji Srinivasan. And he was one of the first people who was very early in sounding the alarm bell regarding COVID. This is back in early January when no one else was really taking him seriously. And actually, a lot of the tech publications or even newspapers published demeaning articles about Silicon Valley and their no handshake rule. They were mocking them. This was Recode and Vox. And Balaji Srinivasan then gets into this big argument with, um, it's like tech versus media. And he makes the point that actually a lot of decision makers in public policy or in politics or in journalism, they tend to have degrees which aren't STEM degrees or which don't have a strong understanding of quantitative uh, fields. And as a result, numbers don't tend to be so intuitive to them. And that was partly the reason why they couldn't understand the exponential case rise, what was going to happen with covid there was an article by the CEO of Coinbase, the problems with academia. And I think one of the core issues that he had highlighted was much of the work done in academic fields is for your peers. It's very reputation-based and the prestige of getting published in large journals. But actually, there's little interest in translating that scientific knowledge into a commercial, tangible product. And they're very detached from market incentives. And also, you know, the notion of you being wrong in the many years of work uh, or the field that you've studied, there's no real incentive for you to change your mind. Whereas, as you've mentioned, and others have alluded to as well, business is one area, unlike politics and even science, where it pays to change your mind um, and actually pays quite a fair bit in certain cases. It, it literally pays. So there's compensation for your uh, loss of status mm -hmm. through disproportionate reward. Yeah, absolutely right. 
I, th- I think science is, is not nearly as clever a system. Certainly, once you move up something like, I'm going to give the credit to pure mathematicians, because Nassim is very good on this. He makes the point that among pure mathematicians, first of all, the very greatest people in the field are probably like living with their mum, okay, <laughs> in some sort of basement somewhere, and they wander around in a shabby coat. But if they publish something which proves that a very eminent mathematician is wrong, then it's wrong. There's a lovely story from Richard Feynman where he, he got the science bug because he was present in a lecture and there was a very eminent, plausible sounding person who was talking about, I don't know, is it the spin value of some particle or whatever? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he delivered a very, very long reasoned paper showing why this was three or something, right? And then this guy in the back puts up his hand with a strong kind of, I think it was like a strong Bronx accent or something. He goes, it's not three. They measured it. It's two, right? And so this guy, all of his fine workings out were proved worthless. Now, if science works in that way, where people actually go, okay, fair enough. And you notice this, which is that in real world problem solving, the ability to actually hold more than one possibility in your head at the same time is what you need. Whereas in terms of scientific stature, arguably, that doesn't hold you, that doesn't really reward you very well. There's a phrase from Mark Andreessen from A16Z. He said part of their philosophy for the investment firm is strong ideas loosely held, which is the ability to hold completely contradictory and conflicting ideas in your head at the same time and being able to test both of them. I think just to maybe speak on behalf or in defense of of scientists or academics, it probably becomes... I'm not not dissing medicine here. I think that's a craft. I think good doctors admit it's a craft, not a science. You use science as business should, particularly if new evidence comes along. David Ogilvy had this weird thing where he always wanted the agency to be... His model was people called it the University of Advertising. He didn't like that because it sounded too theoretical and too ethereal. He said, no, no, what I want to be is the teaching hospital of advertising, where you practice and you teach and you research, Mm -hmm. but you do all three in a kind of closed loop. And David Ogilvy had this other quote, which I'm forgetting it now, but it's, we're very bad at knowing how we, thinking how we feel and saying what we think. Funnily enough, there's no evidence he ever said it. And it's a great quote anyway, Mm -hmm. which is the trouble with market research, I think he said, is that people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. And so that's undoubtedly true that the parts of the brain that do the talking don't really have introspective access to the parts that do the feeling. And the parts that do the feeling are what really drives behavior, I would argue. Mm -hmm. You've spoken about logic and something you refer to as psychologic and also your dislike for efficiency. Could you speak a bit about that? Yes. Efficiency quite often means doing very effectively those things that you can prove you're doing very effectively because they happen to be accessible to metrics. And the problem there is that it's only worthwhile doing something efficiently if it's effective And lots of business writers uh, have commented on this. Peter Drucker said, nothing is more painful to see an organization pursuing with great efficiency and ever-increasing efficiency something which they should not be doing at all. And that's one problem to it. The second problem is there's always a trade-off between efficiency and discovery, which is the act of discovering new things always comes at a short-term cost to efficiency and is essential for your long-term success and survival. So the argument I always derive from this, which is, I think, a wonderful one in a book by Eric Beinhocker, 
which I recommend to all your punters, by the way, which is called The Origins of Wealth. And I think it's in that book where he makes the point that bees don't exclusively follow the waggle dance. If you basically exclusively follow the waggle dance, that would be in the short term the most effective way to collect pollen and nectar. But they accept that there's a trade-off between exploit and explore. And that if, first of all, the environment's changing. So efficiently pursuing what your existing data set tells you in the short term makes complete sense because it's completely exploiting what you already know. But what you already know in most real world settings is a tiny fraction of what you need to know. And also what you know is not consistently true in that bees could build up a very good model of where the pollen and nectar is, but then some cows break into a field and eat all the flowers and suddenly they need to revise their map of the world. And that's just as true, by the way, in most social sciences, that everything you think is true can be changed by a kind of phase transition in what people believe or how they behave, or a change in context will completely change behavior. So my argument is, in the business world, if you look at 10 extraordinarily successful billion-dollar creations, I'll say Nespresso, Dyson, Starbucks, Amazon Prime. I'll add a few more in a second. There was no evidence to show there was a market for any of those products before they came into existence. So if you'd gone and looked for evidence that there was a market for the $800 vacuum cleaner or that there was a market for the 70 pence cup of coffee that you make yourself at home, okay, you would have found absolutely scant evidence for demand for either of those two things. And yet when the thing itself exists, for whatever magical reason, or Starbucks, okay, if you'd gone around America saying, would you pay three bucks for a cup of coffee or equivalent in 1990, most people would have told you no, many of them in less polite terms. And yet the existence of Starbucks creates the very demand which didn't exist before. The point I'm making there is that You've got to be very, very careful in any institutional setting because proving you're right is more important to a doctor or businessman than doing the right thing. In terms of their career, in terms of their defensive decision-making, resistance to blame or being sued or being fired, coming up with an answer that's easy to defend, e.g. the data told me to do it, is a better approach to your individual career success than actually doing something which is harder to justify with a better outcome. Because if that thing goes wrong, and there's always a degree of unpredictability, if your instinctive decision goes wrong, you're out on your ear. Whereas if your crap but heavily justified decision, where you can show all your working out, uh, if that goes wrong, you, you've effectively got a, you know, a book to stick down the back of your trousers. So they have a very, very strong interest in conforming to lazy thinking because lazy thinking doesn't look like thinking at all. And therefore it keeps your head below the parapet. And this is the asymmetry I always point out in business, which is that at the very simple level, creative people always have to present their ideas to logical people for approval, okay? But that process never happens the other way around. You don't get a bunch of accountants saying, well, we think we should invest, you know, 7.3 million. But before we present this to the board, we're going to get some poets in to see if they've got alternative ideas. Okay. So this kind of left-right hemisphere imbalance, which may be scientific or maybe a total metaphor, 
I don't know which. I'm a big fan of the Ian McGilchrist metaphor. Yeah, the master and the emissary. The master and his emissary. The master and his emissary happens absolutely in the sense that left hemisphere activities are unpoliced by the right hemisphere in business, whereas the same never applies the other way around. So anything right hemisphere has to be kind of measured and you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and a feasibility study and all that stuff. That still applies, probably rightly so, by the way, to an extent. But once you come up with a left hemisphere solution where you have a good reason, there is no incentive to look to widen the solution space. And this, by the way, is my huge defense of behavioral science. I think behavioral science is a bit of a crap science, okay? I don't think it will ever have really good predictive value. It might have explanatory value, but you've got to be careful about explanatory value because we can use something to explain anything. But the real value of behavioral science is simply that it expands the possible solution space. Once you add psychological solutions into the possible solution set, your chance of solving a problem just goes up massively because there are more ways of solving it. Because that culture or that mindset doesn't seem to be in place, do you think that's why there's probably a lack of psychological moonshots? Yeah, I think the classic psychological moonshot, then I give loads of examples, is, you know, do you want to make a train faster mm-hmm. or do you want to make the train journey more enjoyable or more productive? And what is certainly true is that in a train company, in a train setting surrounded by engineers, you get a lot more kudos for working out a way to make a train 3% faster than you would for saying, let's put Wi-Fi on all the trains. But to the customer perspective, the Wi-Fi makes more difference than the speed. Mm-hmm. At Uber, I would argue, it's a bit cheaper. You know, What's a game changer about Uber is that the map and a few other little devices, informational devices, which are often unnoticed, completely changes the psychological experience of waiting for a taxi. And it turns it from one where you feel powerless and helpless and in a deep slough of uncertainty to one where you actually feel in control. By the way, there are a few more things. It isn't just the map, although the map is hugely important, and the estimate of the arrival time, and the fact that it tells you the license plate number of the driver and his name and his rating, okay? All of those things are important. The fact, by the way, also, that it gives you an estimate of wait time before you commit to book. So it manages your expectations. Now, the problem with ringing a taxi firm was always you thought you were getting a taxi in five minutes. And when they said 27, you went, oh, shit, this is useless, right? Whereas if Uber says expected wait time 25 minutes, and you press book Uber, and it actually comes up with 19, you're actually quite happy about it. So there, there are a whole bunch of little psychological things that go on in that Uber interaction. But the, the biggest one is almost certainly saying, where's my cab? Oh, look, he's over there. Oh, he's stuck at those traffic lights. I'll make myself a cup of tea. And then I also argue a little bit of ego, which is walking out of, I don't know if you do this, but you walk out of the building to time your arrival on the sidewalk <laughs> to coincide exactly with the car. Because as I said, it makes you feel like Kaiser Soze. There's just a great ego trip in walking out of a building and having a car pull up. Makes you feel like somebody important. Whereas standing around in the rain going, I can't see my car, makes you feel like a loser. And if you think about it in evolutionary terms, what we've evolved to do is to do things that make us feel good rather than things that make us feel bad. So even on the very simple approach withdraw model of behavior, Uber is a psychological moonshot because the whole booking of a cab, now I associate with largely positive feelings, whereas before it came at the risk of looking like a prat. 
Five Guys is mostly a psychological innovation. Its approach to pricing is really weird. Extras on the burger are free, if I'm right. The burgers are insanely expensive, and they're very generous with the fries, and they give you free peanuts and unlimited refills. So it's basically an extraordinary, brilliant experiment in eccentric pricing. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that you don't mind paying a lot of money for the burger because it's all about the burger. That's where you want to spend big, where the differentiation lies. And then all the areas where they're undifferentiated, they actually make comparatively cheap. I'm going to be mischievous here because it only just occurred to me, okay? Yeah. So, sorry, sorry to be so. No, go what, for it. What is the five guys of tax? If you took the UK where your tax, the visible tax you paid is income, mm -hmm. all went towards the National Health Service, for example, okay? Right. right. We'd actually be happy with quite a high, you know, it all went towards very, very visible, tangible things. Then you use VAT and the invisible forms of tax collection mm -hmm. to fund things which are less attractive. So you practice a form of hypothecation, which is what Five Guys does. Five Guys is hypothecated burger sale. This is my point. Now, toothpaste is a lovely case where the stripes are totally pointless, but they convey to us that this thing can do more than one thing, that the intricacy of the product delivery basically creates believability in a dual promise. Well, as soon as we put it in our mouth, we mix it all up. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is everybody asked, how do they get the stripes in the tube? Nobody asked why. And of course, it's almost certainly totally pointless. But psychologically, a toothpaste is hypothecated toothpaste. The red bit does this, the white bit does that. There you go. Metrics are an indicator of how well something is being done, whether a target or goal is being met and whether certain things should be tweaked or optimised. They're used in business, whether startups or large-scale organisations, in education, academia, and many other areas. You've spoken about how reliance or over-reliance on metrics can be quite harmful metrics concern me, which is, I'll give you a lovely example of why I worry about metrics. And I worry about education for this reason, which is we're selecting for people on the basis of a proxy measure, which is educational attainment. Now, let's look at dogs, okay? I'm, I'm going to sound like a nutbag eugenicist here for a second. When you actually have dogs which were bred for something useful, which is the performance of a real-world function, which has lots and lots of complex competing trade-offs involved. When you breed for useful dogs, you end up with something like the Border Collie, which is the, I think is this, I don't know if you're a dog lover, but um, border, I don't have a dog, but Border Collies are basically the most intelligent, capable, loyal, fantastic breed of dog, okay? Right. They're healthy and they're, you know, they're hugely energetic to a point where they're not ideal as household pets, to be honest. Then you get those kind of specialist breeds where What's happened is the breed has decided that size of ear or snubness of nose is the quality on which they're judged because they're being judged on metrics, not judged on practical utility, okay? Mm -hmm. What you see is all those breeds of dogs have massive health problems because they've been over-optimized in two or three directions. Border Collie basically wipes the floor with everything else, in my opinion. Uh, but then you have Golden Retrievers, uh, poodles, strangely, which I always thought were decorative, but actually were bred for punch. <laughs> All those kind of herding dogs, those working dogs, are basically magnificent dogs. Okay, mm -hmm. when you have those show dogs, which are you know, if you can, you know, practically, I think in some breeds, having a concave face is practically viewed to be a desirable feature. Okay, right. because they've taken a metric. And regardless of the trade-offs entailed, have over-optimized around one measure. Mm -hmm. Those dogs tend to be healthcare disasters. 
I think that there's a really important point here, which is the extent to which businesses and, and the, the world of politics now uses academic attainment as a proxy measure for everything important about a human being is a terrible thing. I think it's Goodhart's law gone mad, where the metric becomes a yeah. measure, and then you've got all these perverse incentives which can undermine all of that. Some very clever people game the system, by the way, which really impresses me, which is they get a letter of admission from Harvard, and they realize the letter is worth 90% of the degree. In other words, getting into Harvard is worth 90% of having a Harvard degree. And so they take the letter, which was sent to them for free, Mm -hmm. and they hawk it around Silicon Valley and say, I've been admitted to Harvard, but I'd rather work for you. I argue in advertising, we've got absurdly obsessed with optimizing the efficiency of targeting. And my argument is a very large part of the value of advertising is simply increasing your chances of being lucky. Mm -hmm. Fame basically gives you a massive increase in your surface area exposure to possible asymmetric opportunities. You know, people come to you with ideas. People want to work for you. People work for you for less because they want your name on the CV. When your chief executive rings someone up, they return the call. All those things are benefits of being famous, okay? But they're they're impossible to predict and they're impossible to quantify. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that, that, you know, it's a bit like saying, for a drug to work, do you need to understand it at the molecular level? (laughs) Well, it kind of helps, but (laughs) would you refuse to use a life-saving drug simply because the mechanism of its operation wasn't actually understandable? Mm -hmm. The other thing that worries me is that if you look at the sigmoid curve of human behavior change, which is affected by social copying, which, you know, Um, uh, Actually, we could have gone for another 20, 30 years before video conferencing took off, simply because the norm, the default, was you hold a physical meeting. All your clients are people you visit. and you know The assumption in an ad agency that your clients have to be people you've met in person, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, All those self-limiting beliefs might have persisted for ages. Now, interestingly, and this fascinates me, it may be that your advertising is most effective when it looks least effective. That at the early stage of that sigmoid curve, okay, your advertising appears to be very ineffective. Whereas later on, when more and more people join the kind of social movement from one equilibrium to another, you, you could look at that acceptance of same-sex marriage or acceptance of drink driving or mm-hmm. the installation of solar panels or the adoption of a new kind of fashion okay, we'll follow a sigmoid curve. Early adopters, then eventually it makes its way into the mainstream, then it hits the kind of asymptote. Now, the most effective advertising may well be at the beginning, where measurement suggests it's the least effective. Hmm. The least effective advertising might be in the middle of that curve, when your measurement will suggest it's being incredibly effective. So our whole approach to measurement is assuming a linearity which probably doesn't exist in the system. Is, is that because one makes the assumption that, for example, just because something can be measured doesn't necessarily mean that it's important or worth measuring, and actually some of the more important things cannot be measured, and so you have to make do with whatever's available? And also, if you, if you see a problem as a network problem, then where you intervene, small interventions at the beginning uh, may have disproportionate payoffs because maybe the achievement of advertising is, is to jump from one cluster to another, for example. Right. But I mean, there are loads and loads of things. I mean, the great thing about advertising, okay, what's different about complexity theory, I think, this is total generalization, and people at the Santa Fe Institute probably be gnashing their teeth. But in, in, in physics, you look for laws and rules and universals, okay? In complex systems, you look for recurring patterns. 
which is why metaphor is so valuable. Quite often, metaphor, the darkest hour is just before dawn. Um, right. The mamas and the papas, actually, rather than the metaphor. You know the kind of shit. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, but okay, the, the recurring patterns. And the interesting thing about these recurring patterns is they recur at different scales. To my great defense for arguing that advertising and consumer capitalism is the best funded social science experiment in the world is you can literally look at something that's used to sell chocolate and you can apply it to tax policy. And nobody's doing this because everybody's trying to look for rules instead of looking for patterns. And everybody gains much more status by looking at tax policy than they do by looking at how people sell chocolate. But actually, the approach to chocolate, okay, or, the, or how you, you know, um, someone somewhere in the capitalist ecosystem, in the glorious Galapagos Islands of consumer of capitalism, <laughs> someone's found a solution to your problem, but it's just in a category where no one who values their dignity would dream of getting involved. So we have this little mantra, which is dare to be trivial. Right. Which is, if, you, if in the middle of a meeting, which is about how we get people to accept electric cars, if someone starts talking about, you know, Red Bull, mm-hmm. They mustn't feel embarrassed doing that, and you mustn't shut them up. There's a weird Soviet-era thing called Triz, which was very much based on this. Someone's already solved your problem, but it's in a, it's in a different domain, probably using a different vocabulary, so you never spotted the commonalities. Two thoughts come to mind. The first one being, do you think part of the reason why there is this reluctance to look elsewhere or to perhaps encourage trivial thoughts, as you would put them, is because the way a lot of the job markets work is that you're trying to sort of take this individual and you're trying to almost shoehorn them in this pre-existing job description rather than taking the skills or the, the unique traits that that person might apply and thinking how you could actually use that for the role that you're trying to advertise for. Yeah, this is really interesting because uh, I think we, pre-def- we, tr- we pre-pigeonhole jobs far too much. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, this is the great thing about being vice chairman. You could write your own job description. And there's a great guy called J.P. Rangaswamy, who used to be the chief technology officer of a BT. But he had a rule, which was he never took a pre-existing job. Because he said, if you, take it, if you step into someone else's shoes, the expectations of your function are too heavily defined by what your predecessor did. So he'd only accept a job if the job was created. Right. Because, because there is no set um, precedent for what you no, do. There, there you can actually say what really matters here rather than having a bunch of people coming to you saying, Dave always used to do this. Mm-hmm. Or I'm coming to you about this because this is the thing that Dave used to do. <laughs> he said, no, 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 you need to go into a company with a new job description, a new job title, which gives you freedom to carve out a new niche. For It's a rogue B approach, I guess. You're doing right. the things, it's explore versus exploit. Do you think E.O. Wilson, the sociobiologist, his theory of consilience is then incredibly important because it kind of ties in different disciplines of knowledge to unearth new areas? If you're looking at how to use efficient methods for implementing tax policy by looking at how chocolate sells. Yes, um, I think that probably comes under the, under the field of consilience, yeah. Yeah. He probably is vomiting in his mouth if he hears this because... And he probably doesn't think of consilience involving uh, investigation <laughs> into the, um, the sales of chocolate bars or the popularity of Red Bull. I mean, if the film industry sort of understands this pattern recognition thing, in that they realize that certain stories have recur. And uh, the classic example of this is apparently the pitch for the film Alien 
was yes. three words. Yeah. Jaws, Jaws in, in space. space. Yeah. Okay. It was helped, by the way, by the marketing, because I think the line, in space, no one can hear you scream, is both scientifically accurate and absolutely <laughs> magnificent. Okay. Um, but, but nonetheless, Jaws in Space understands that there's a kind of narrative which is proven to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so the pattern recognition thing, I think, is really, really interesting. And so you will get wonderful cases where, what is it, 10 Things I Hate About You or something is a remake of Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. And so on. I think there's something very interesting there. But I, I think that science is so fixated on the universal rule that actually more attention should be paid to what I call the duck-billed platypus, the anomaly, which looks like a one-off, but maybe contains within it, within its very counterintuitive existence, some interesting truth that you can actually deploy somewhere else. This reminds me of a, a discussion, or there's a series of debates or discussions between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. And actually, your colleague, Douglas Murray, was a moderator for the one that happened in London. And those two sides almost represented where Peterson was arguing for the deep-lying psychology and mythology of religion. And on the other end, it was Sam Harris, one of the new atheists with a rational approach. If stories help you behave in a way that's conducive to survival or, or evolutionary fitness, mm-hmm. Dawkins' bizarre assumption is that stories that aren't true must therefore be misleading. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't get that at all. That's patently stupid. Because in cultural evolution, entities which evolved very good storytelling traditions would enjoy a significant advantage over others. My argument is, look, this is bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. What we need, to do, if you're a genuine scientists, we just need to do an experiment. And what I'm going to do I'm going to take two islands, okay, with identical resources, and I'm going to put 50 humanists on one island, and I'm going to put 50 Mormons on the other. That's, that's science, right? It's not yeah. going, oh, this isn't true, so it's wrong. Our whole epistemology as humans is optimized for evolutionary fitness, not for accuracy. So we don't perceive the world in a way that's accurate. We perceive the world in a way that's helpful. If I asked Robert Trivers this, and he said, my money's on the Mormons. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, first of all, among the humanists, they'd immediately have a massive rift around the eating of animals, wouldn't they? They'd start having massive intellectual debates about the eating of animals or polyamory. The Mormons, meanwhile, would have built some massive great structure. <laughs> Robert Trivers, one of his students was Brett Weinstein, the brother of Eric Weinstein, and Ah, uh, he came up with the idea of the metaphorical truth. So it may not be true in the sense that what we consider it to be true, but you're better off behaving as if it is true. And he cites off a few examples. And again, this formed the crux of the distinction between what do you mean by true and what do you mean by fact? It's fascinating to see how that there is a side which is the humanist side or perhaps the rationalist side that one would deem as being incredibly intelligent and insightful. But there are these blind spots that exist because of the way their worldview has been shaped, or perhaps for other reasons, or because they believe in a religion without realizing that they believe in a religion. Well, also, if you, look, if you bring in ergodicity and you realize that life is more a decatastrophization problem than it is an optimization problem. Yes, exactly. Well, heuristics are really good at decatastrophization, right? Because there's no way you can optimize your wife or your choice of partner, right? Far more important than attempting to optimize that is not making a disastrous decision. And in not making a disastrous decision, we're going to upweight certain bits of information which set off alarm bells. It's exactly the same that the humanist rationalist school were mostly saying we were over, overstating the risk of COVID. This is worrying because it's behavioral science used to arrive at a very erroneous conclusion 
which is that it was, oh gosh, we're much more frightened of train cra- plane crashes than we are of something else. Yeah. And, you know, oh, this is just a, you know, a saliency bias or a, you know, whatever. Now, mm-hmm. actually, if you look at the world's religions, Islam's pretty damn good on plague. If we'd actually gone back to the Quran for our plague advice and bypassed the need for epidemiological modeling, we would have done a pretty good job, I think. What's their specific take on it, just out of interest? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's lockdown. Right, okay. <laughs> and you, also, you also prevent movement between towns and cities. Yeah. And so that was essentially, religion is how to deal with things you don't understand, mm-hmm. right? Now, what science did was, let's pretend we understand things we don't understand and make recommendations on that, which is very different. Because one of, you know, one of them is a kind of, okay, let's pretend we have knowledge. And I, you know, I would argue that the, the heuristic approach is actually there isn't much in the very early stages of a totally novel virus. There probably isn't much we know about how to respond that they didn't, inverted commas, know in you know, the 8th century or something. And I think that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for joining us, Rory. I've got another podcast, would you believe? But this has been one of the best ones I've ever had. Thank you very much. It's been really, really fantastic. And that was this week's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, or even if you didn't, please let us know by leaving a comment or any feedback in either the Instagram or LinkedIn posts. And to catch all future episodes, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, click subscribe. And if you could leave a rating, that would be great. This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas. Thank you for listening. Till next time. And I think that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for joining us, Rory.